Welcome to the A Sound Effect Podcast, the podcast about sound effects. And today we also have a story about music for you. My name is Asbjørn Andersen, and I'm the founder of asoundeffect.com. And I'm Christian Halskjær, founder of Hertz & Bit Sound Effects. We have some really interesting people on the show today. Christian, can you tell us about them and their projects? Yeah, for this episode, uh, Jennifer Walden spoke to composers Andy Grush and Taylor Newton-Stewart, also known as the Newton Brothers, about composing music for the Netflix series The Haunting of Bly Manor. She also spoke to sound designer Andy Kennedy from Boom Post in London about his work on season three of the Netflix series The Crown, specifically the much-award-nominated episode three. Sounds good. Let's have a quick listen to what the independent sound effects community has been up to. And before we begin, a quick heads up that there are a lot of deals to be had over on asoundeffect.com right now. So if you're looking for some great offers on sound effect libraries and virtual instruments, hop on to asoundeffect.com forward slash sale. The Metal World Sound Library is a comprehensive collection of high-class metal sound effects with custom instruments using a metal bucket, among other things, which has then been bowed, plucked, and played with an e-bow, and so on. You get everything from short metal hits to long textures and ambiences. The Ironwork Machinery Library by Pole Position Production is field recordings of machines and tools turning on, operating and turning off, all recorded in a professional workshop at 192 kilohertz, 107 clips and over 10 gigabytes. Red Deer by Ivo Vicic Sound Libraries features roaring of the European red deer in woods, mountain slopes, valleys, etc. These sounds can be used for things like monster vocals and such. You get 65 files, including metadata. Cinematic Water Wishes and Textures by Slava Pogorelski lets you create realistic or abstract underwater movement. This unique toolset of water and underwater sounds includes 285 files with metadata. Dust, Dirt and Rocks by Tatak Audio is crisp, clean, crunchy and closely mic'd. Various types of pebble, dust, dirt and debris, along with some smashing rock impacts. Good for adding detail to the tail of an explosion, for example. You get 160 sounds of various debris with metadata included. Hey, this is Jennifer Walden from A Sound Effect, and I am here today with sound designer Andy Kennedy at Boom Post in London to talk about season three of Netflix's award-winning series, The Crown. Welcome, Andy. Thanks, Jen. 
So congratulations on your nominations this award season. Thank you. So far, episode three, Apper Fan has earned a BAFTA TV Craft nom for sound editing fiction and an Emmy nom for sound editing and also an Emmy nom for composer Martin Phipps's original dramatic score on Apper Fan. So let's look at that episode, which is quite heartbreaking. The opening sequence is the small mining town of Apper Fan in Wales. Uh, it starts on a Thursday afternoon. It's raining quite heavily and we go inside an elementary school with a classroom full of children. They're being dismissed for the day, and so we see them interact with their families, and they're all practicing a song for a concert the next day. It's quite a lovely sequence, but there's this feeling of dread that's building up to the events of Friday morning. How did you use sound to create the sense of impending doom? Um, the you know For the soundscape of the mining village itself, it's to come up with sounds of a 60s pit mechanism that we could use and float around the valley. Uh, we wanted a, a pervasive and you know, percussive element you know, to give the mine a sort of sense of scale that it's always there in the background working away. Uh, we found some old news footage and um, could reference what it actually sounded like in the pits of the day were like. And um, then using creative license, we kind of came up with our own sort of design in the same sort of oral language, if you like. Uh, and it's like a type of pile driver sound. It went in an, in the early track lay, but obviously during the mix, you have other elements going in there. So the rain and stuff like that would probably wash it away. But there were a couple of times where we could reprise this thing as a theme, that there was the pulse of this pile driver, sort of like a mechanical beat ticking over a, around this village and echoing across the valley through the, the first nine minutes of the show. And then eventually it, it's taken away by the, by the landslide. The elements I was trying to figure out, it was trying to get something that's industrial, but not too upfront. Um, and I found a sort of shunting yard track, um, which was just, you know, trucks shunting together. It was a nice percussive sounding. It happened a couple of times and it wasn't, so it wasn't too repetitive. And then using a bit of ultiverb, you could get a bit more space in it. So this became one of the elements. Obviously, as we were working, the uh, CGI develops because, you know, we had like tops of houses, but no pit there. You know, it was just rudimentary CGI. So I'm, I'm playing in my head uh, a kind of radio play of what it should sound. Uh, Lee would then go on top of my stuff, at least uh, Lee Warpole, the supervisor, once he'd got better visual effects and add other elements. So there was a, a bit of a call out for the, the, the valley to also have not just this percussive beat but to have a, a sound which is like a wind or a screaming wind and i think the director was he was hooked on something they'd recorded which no one had listed properly we had to find it in the track somewhere um and it was this sort of wild track of like a wind through wire in a, in a mine and that became another element of that sound in the crown you know abavan is quite unique because it spends much of the running time away from the royal family you know, we're not with the Queen all the time. And it embeds us in a community as a disaster unfolds. And at the front of the show, we tried to add rain and distant thunder to give a, a brief glimpse of the Queen in the palace to tie her story into Abavan, a storm on the horizon, as it were. So even though her environment's got a lot quieter and doesn't have this pulse, the water, the rain, which is the catalyst of this disaster, was, was, was prevalent in the sound. Uh, it's a, a really interesting episode sound-wise because the, the score, you know, the underscore, is very minimal. I think we had about 20 minutes total in the show. Um, so we were fairly exposed from sound effects point of view, dialogue, ADR, Foley and stuff. And as such, we used sound uh, to drive the narrative forward. You know, cuts between scenes in the episode are very bold, and frequently elements are unnaturally loud to give the track an aggressive and propulsive dynamic to drive the action forward. Um, we use screams as a motif in the episode, both as a precursor to the disaster and also as a sort of afterthought in the aftermath of the event. So as the children run through the rain across the playground at the end of the school day, we use a layer of children screaming in panic or terror. Uh, when we cut to the top of the pit and the wires transporting the coal have a, a metallic screaming sound and this wind thing, which the director so wanted in it. The wind up there is a wailing sound captured in the lift shaft of a disused mine, but it added this sort of screamy quality to it. So the whole time there's this undercurrent theme of, of an impending disaster, you know, hopefully, you know, with the elements in the soundtrack. Whenever the words 
Be Quiet or Listen are written into the script. You know that's game on for the sound team. So how are you able to take advantage of those moments in Apravan? I mean, there's a, there's a number of occasions in the show where the focus of our characters is actually listening. You know, they're listening to things. So as an audience, we're also listening. But in terms of a dynamic track, uh, we're trying to utilize uh, very quiet and subtle atmospheres. When we first see the landslide through the window, we see it rather than hear it. Uh, sonically, you know, the main sound of the features is a gentle rattling of the windows, which I really, I really like. You know, there's a, a library of sounds, which is just a vibrational library. Um, and that was the kind of thing you would expect in the real world. Obviously, there's a subcurrent of uh, low frequency sounds, but obviously, if you're watching it through a TV set, you can't necessarily hear that. Um, and sonically, the main sound we feature is this um, uh, sense of scale, the rumble and the roar of the landslide itself, telling the story. Uh, and then the violence of the landslide is shaking the very landscape of the valley itself. Another example is when the, the villagers are digging through the rubble looking for survivors. When they all stop and listen again, it's like our crying motif. We use a, a design wailing, crying wind and slowly and gently increase the level as the villagers strain their ears, like almost as if they're trying to tune into whether they can hear the kids underneath the, uh, the rubble. It's sort of subjective and deafening silence. But the show generally has this switch between being reasonably loud and quiet and then being very quiet. And with no music, the audience is left in a place where they're actually listening to, you know, clocks ticking or, you know, the wind blowing through the curtains in the palace. But we use that a lot. It's one of the key motifs of the show is to try and uh, keep a kind of slightly dynamic soundtrack, depending on what's happening, but also to try and reserve this, this quiet space. And then, you know, in the Abavan episode, after the event, we're in a supermarket. So it's incredibly noisy and they're pressing the buttons on the machines and stuff. But there is a, a certain need to try and make the show more effective by using quiet. I think everyone's frightened of silence, not necessarily silence, but quiet. Um, and you can genuinely use it to great effect. And it's, it's very much part of, of the Crown's signature sound, really. So we talked about some of the sounds of this landslide, like the windows rattling and the subharmonic sounds. But what about the sound of the actual landslide? How did you create those great rocky sounds of the landslide coming down the hill and overtaking the school? Well, we got to deal with the, the fact that as the show's evolving, the CGI is evolving. So I put together a kind of a, a layout, which was a lot more than what's in the mix at the moment. Um, and that's because there's certain reservations when you're kind of mixing that you realize you can do because you've then got the ADR in, you've got kids, you've got bells ringing, you've got things that weren't there when you're actually just trying to make this event off screen happen. So most of the initial part of it when they're looking from the factory is the CG of the of the whole slide coming down the hill. And they'd added additional elements after the sounds had left me. So my ingredients were basically some avalanche things I'd done for another show many moons ago. Um, and also I tried to use a thing called a pyroclastic flows. The film I did was about volcano on Montserrat. And pyroclastic flows are the most fearful thing they pour out of the volcano and they're like liquid glass rock. It's superheated rock. It's what basically wipes everyone out in Pompeii. So it's got a kind of watery element to it, yet it's still rock. So this element came out of my collection. I thought maybe this will work because we're not dealing with snow and rock and that kind of thing in, in the avalanche language. We're dealing with a cold tip that's basically sliding down the hill. So for the very brief moment, you get to glimpse the coal literally taking off and going down the hill. Um, these are the key elements. So it gives you this crispy, uh, high-frequency element on top of the subharmonic bass, which is always there, but with the avalanche sort of elements, which gives it the sort of mid-range movement. But then, of course, they added um, towers falling over in the latter CG. So Lee then went on top of my stuff and added spot sounds because in some ways a lot of what we do is great but until you get it to sync to the picture and you haven't got a picture to sync it to it's pretty tricky really um so you know the colliery point of view was mainly that and then slow um elements in the shop while she's buying her shopping which again depends on what you're watching it through um in the mix they basically dumped, not dumped it they just held it back made it real kept it in its perspective which it was she runs into the street they see what's going on and that is the kind of main avalanche elements um, and i was also trying to use water 
for the last final wave of it coming in because it's like a tidal wave of coal coming towards you. But again, mix-wise, we just focused on the things that were, were the reality of the day. So there's the lights flickering inside the schoolroom. The children hide under the desk. So we know what's happening as an audience. It doesn't seem at any point and just keep turning up the bass. Here comes the rumble. Here comes the... Um, and the scary bit is the children's fear. You know, they're breathing under the desk, cuts to the window. Again, the vibrational window elements. Um, and then, of course, again, CG-wise, they've added a tree. It wasn't there when I did it, just being peeled out. So having an extra tree element at that point, you buy it. And of course, then the final impact is the flourish of the glass breaking and it pummeling into the room. I did ask if they could extend the shot a little bit because I felt the black was too short. So unless I go and check, I'm not sure whether they did extend it because the original cut, it just sort of ended and we went straight into the supermarket. And I just felt you needed a bit of a breathing space to take it in. And I think they may have added you know, maybe just six or seven frames, but it was what was needed. But there was a, a certain reality about the sounds. Fortunately, I had a, a reasonably good recording of an open cast mine, which is people digging in coal because coal's carbonized. It's not like rock. It's got its own character. Um, and it helps when you've got real elements to add those to the rock elements. So they become the prominent things. But, you know, we were always aware that we wanted to give it perspective and we wanted to have some respect for what the victims experienced at Abavan so that the audience can feel that experience. Uh, things like um, metal screams and machinery going down the hill really add to that added theme of screams again, because uh, that really gives you a kind of feeling that there's something about to happen, which is really unbelievably dynamic and also incredibly powerful. But I think it works. I mean, it was a tricky one to sort of track lay because I felt that I wanted, again, to always have this reality. But the thing was, when you add all the other ingredients in the kids and stuff, you really get more engaged with the kids than you do the avalanche. The avalanches or the, the coal coming down the hill. You get more involved with the kids than you do the actual sounds of that physicality. But it, it's, it's certainly credible to me anyway. And how did you use sound to help contrast the Queen's composure with the chaos that's happening at Epiphan? Um, we took advantage of the cuts to the palace uh, to really contrast with the, with the disaster of Abervan. The rooms in palaces and things, they're really peaceful. You know, there's gentle bird song, you know, uh, the soft, warm movement of distant traffic and the constant metronome of ticking clocks. And I don't know if you've noticed, but the show is... A real homage to clocks. <laughs> yes. We we like our clocks. Um, so there's a there's a lot of clocks in the show. But again, because we have that space, because we have that silence, we can do it. And um, I have done a couple of films where when you put a clock in, directors go, "God, I'm really sick of the clocks." But then you wouldn't hear a clock unless it was relatively quiet. So um, things like um, doors, they have to be amplified a little bit. You know, they have to have a bit of scale to them and and reverb highlights the uh, sort of size of the rooms. The same can be said of Downing Street. However, when we cut from the palace to the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Wilson in, in his plane to Aberdeen, they played the plane engines really loud uh, than we, you'd normally do for an interior scene and the plane rattling as it flies through the storm clouds going on its way to Aberdeen. Um, and you wanted it to feel violent as if you're approaching a sort of combat zone, almost like the chopper blades in, in Apocalypse Now. And then in Abervan, to utilize the, the palette of sort of slowed down wailing and crying winds, the landscape echoing the distress of the community because they're all digging their kids out of the school. It's a, a horrible scene. And when Wilson arrives at the scene of the event, we can hear activity off as a bulldozer and things. But, you know, trying to focus on the details of the moment, how your hearing is affected by these events. You know, he walks past this light in the street and they've lit up the street. So it kind of amps up the, the buzz of the lamp as it goes past. So when you actually get into this landscape of people digging their children out of the, out of the coal, you really feel it. And it's that sort of use of contrast between certain sounds, you know, where we can be quiet and then we can be loud. But we're also very respective of, of the, in this particular episode anyway, the event itself. So there was, a, there was a certain genuine need to try and get a reality to it already. So Boom Post is a proponent of recording fully outside of the studio. So you go to different locations and record footsteps there. Uh, what were some of the interesting locations that you recorded fully footsteps for for this episode of The Crown? I mean, The Crown's 
it's been our sort of mark really to have um, sounds recorded in live locations rather than on a Foley stage. Um, I don't live in a palace, so I don't know what it sounds like, but trying to do Buckingham Palace or Balmoral or you know, Kensington Pal in a Foley stage, just, um, oh, just I wouldn't know where to start. So we've basically got a lot of different characters, sonic characters to the floors in these palaces. You know, it's just a bit like Shakespeare. There's a lot of entrances and exits, you know, people always coming and going. So um, having the correct acoustic for someone departing a room or even arriving. So when the people are shown to see the Queen, you hear their footsteps off and they are real footsteps off. And then they walk in and the focus of the feet then becomes very upfront, you know, as you would if you were in a room with somebody. So there's a big wide palette of material we're working from. And if anybody out there is wanting to sort of try this technique, you seriously have to go out and do a lot of recording. So they've done stuff from Boom anyway. They've done things at Hatfield House, uh, another place called Brimpton Manor. And um, we've got endless um, recordings of female feet, male feet, shoes, leather shoes, soft shoes, sneakers, um, doing a variety of things, going up and down stairs, walking across very big, open, quiet rooms. And you capture the acoustic. When they're cut, they're generally cut as a, there's a lead foot so that's basically the footstep for what you see on the screen. And then it's augmented with other footsteps from other recordings to give it the character we want. So sometimes we're using the production PFX footsteps as a guide and sometimes going on top of it with additional, much better recorded with better mics um, recordings. So if they're walking on gravel, those footsteps are then in sync with what would be the sync recording on the day but augmented, so it's got a, another layer to it. Um, and I, I've been recording stuff for years. Lee has been recording stuff for years. Saoirse, the lady who cuts the sound spot effects and, and some of the Foley stuff, she records an awful lot of stuff. And it's having a palette. You cannot do it without having a palette. But if anyone's up for trying it out, it's really worthwhile having a go at it because you do get a much better finish with your footstep track. You just don't want anyone to recut the picture, really, because that's what really kills you. And it's, it's all about trying to create a complexity beyond what you get on a Foley stage. Um, the sounds in, in the Abba van were basically recorded in a quarry. We actually have uh, some exterior sounds recorded in the quarry, and they became very useful for the, the digging and the people walking over that, that slag heap. So, you know, as the scree falls, you know, and little bits of trickle, it creates a sense of feeling how unstable the surface is that they're walking on. But also it's, it's, it's the real thing. Um, and on top of that, I've got this uh, open cast mining recordings of miners digging coal out, walking around on coal, which are added in the effects layer, which just give it that sort of I don't know, cream on the cake to make it feel credible. But I do think it's this, you know, because of lockdown, everything's got a lot quieter. So I've been out doing exterior feet as many times as I can because there are no planes and there are no cars. There are now because they're switching it back on. But it's great to be able to get those real exterior sounds and put it into the, um, the pool of material that we work from. Andy, thank you so much for joining me today to have this chat about the sound on Netflix as The Crown. You're welcome. Hey, this is Jennifer Walden for a sound effect. Today, I am talking with composers Andy Grush and Taylor Newton-Stewart, also known as the Newton Brothers. The duo has worked a lot with writer-director Mike Flanagan on his films Dr. Sleep and Gerald's Game, and on his series for Netflix, The Haunting of Hill House and the newly released The Haunting of Bly Manor. The two shows are part of the same The Haunting Of anthology, but they're very different. Hill House leaned into the horror genre, while Blind Manor was more of a slow burn. Andy and Taylor, how would you compare your approach to Blind Manor to that of Hill House? What were director Mike Flanagan's ideas for music this time around? Taylor, I'll let you go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's always, it's always a process with every project you do. Uh, you know, you go in, you try some things. I, I think Mike had a very uh, specific idea for the story. And so, you know, he kind of laid out the characters and where they would go. And we had written some themes early on for the different emotions of certain sections and scenes and how they kind of, you know, because really, really love is kind of the theme of Bly Manor. 
And I feel like it's the connection and, and how it affects everybody differently. And so we wrote these pieces to kind of glue and, and bring those sections together. Um, and there was one specific piece, which was Willow O'Waley, that was used. That was very much different than obviously season one. We didn't take a piece that was an existing piece of music and then kind of reimagine it for the show, which is what we did do for Bly Manor. Andy, anything you'd like to add? No, that's, uh, that's pretty on point. I mean, I, you know, we had a good base coming from season one to start with. And I know that early on, Mike had told us he wanted to, you know, expand upon that. Just as, you know, as, as the story is evolving, the music needed to evolve as well and sort of follow the path that these new characters and new storylines were taking. And there was a different sort of approach, even in the recording of the music uh, and even the sounds that we recorded. I mean, all, all of it was a bit of a different approach to approach the story differently because they are different stories and they do have different through lines and they do different things. In the first season, I think we were sort of trying to play between the story and the ambience of, of how you're feeling between, you know, being scared or uneasy. And there's still that in this season as well. It's just, it's different. And so the themes and the uh, way we recorded things needed to sort of address that. There was no specific way in which we did it. It was kind of just like on, on every project, it's like dive in and just start recording music and writing themes and the marriage of the music and the story and the visuals and, and Mike's vision, it all starts to sort of come together as everyone sort of feels out what's, what's working and what's not. Can you walk me through your approach to scoring a series? Like, how do you like to split up the work? How do you like to collaborate? And how do you get started? Uh, we usually get started. Um, we, we kind of go away in our separate caves and we write new pieces we obviously had um, themes from season one we wanted to bring back. So we knew we had those pieces, but there were all these new pieces we wanted to riff off of. And so we both wrote a bunch of pieces and then we kind of came together and we're like, oh, you know, we like this, we don't like that. And then we sent them all to, to Mike to listen to. And then he just got back to us on, you know, what he thought was, what was working and what wasn't. And then we kind of honed in from there. And then we started to find the characters and the pieces we wanted to elaborate on. And that's kind of usually the way our process goes. And there was one piece, uh, I'll never forget, there's just one piece that we wrote that uh, in, in Los Angeles, there was these like outages, these rollouts, and there was a thunderstorm. So the whole entire house was out of power. So I just got on the piano and I started writing this piece. And then that piece ended up being one of the main pieces in, in, in uh, Blind Manor. So it was kind of one of those serendipitous moments. But uh, yeah, we just, you know, we write a bunch of pieces, we send it off and we, you know, we see what kind of resonates with Mike and, and see how it works with the, the scenes once we start getting them. And then um, a lot of arranging and as Andy said, you know, expanding. And I think in a lot of ways, Hill, the music in Hill House was not quite, we didn't quite expand on these melodies as much. I think they were um, a little simpler. And I think in some of the cues, we made these a little more uh, complex in a couple of, of places. And yeah, it was great to kind of to revisit that. So I think that was kind of our process to go back and forth. And we, and then, you know, once we got going in the season, we had all this material to pull from. Then it was about like arranging and, and the musicians and, you know, what cello player was going to play on what and, you know, all this different stuff. And it was great. And Andy, is there an instrument that you like to start plinking out ideas on? Is there an instrument that you gravitate towards? I love the piano. It's, it was my first instrument. I still love playing it. I, I, still, I still spend time during the day just sitting at the piano playing for no reason. Um, <laughs> that's my favorite. I like it because it incorporates everything. I think, I think technically the piano is considered a percussive instrument, actually, which obviously the hammers are hitting the strings. But um, I like that there's rhythm involved, there's chords, there's structure, there's melody, there it's, it encompasses everything. So I, I really love, I love sitting at, at the piano and, and starting there. Slightly better than kazoo. <laughs> kazoo? <laughs> yeah, I actually, it's funny because uh, Taylor's saying that because I, sometimes when I'm trying to come up with melodic ideas, I'll stick the kazoo in my mouth while I'm sitting at the piano to play sort of 
chords and give the chords some color so that I'm not playing a melody with all 10 fingers. Uh, but then I'll sort of hum out the melody with the kazoo because the kazoo stands out. Like no one would ever hear this. I just do it for myself with my little voice memo. <laughs> um, and it, it's actually how the season one main title theme came together. Um, I was specking out there was because there's a lot of like piano parts in there. And I was sort of playing those piano parts and had the kazoo in my mouth playing this super simple melody. Um, and that's sort of what ended up being. <laughs> well, I think you're in good company. Uh, composer Daniel Pemberton is also a big fan of the kazoo. So uh, I think you guys are on <laughs> oh, really? something. Yeah. Oh, he's a great composer, too. That's great to hear. <laughs> <laughs> and Taylor, what about you? Is there an instrument you like to start with to start generating some ideas? Um, you know, it always depends on the film. Like, I think it's, it's interesting because I, I, I feel like certain sounds and instruments kind of inspire and, and I don't know, they, they direct you in a certain path. You know, if it's a rhythm based kind of movie, then, you know, you start out with more percussion and drums. If it's, you know, uh, guitar driven, you go to guitar, but, um, I, you know, I love as well. I love kind of coming up with the ideas on piano just because if it's not good on piano, like if, if you can't find something that you're attaching yourself to, then it's most likely not going to be amazing when you've added all this other stuff on top of it with, you know, strings and an orchestra. It just won't, it's not going to make it necessarily better. So uh, that's the reason why I love piano because it's so stripped down and you can hear it like, okay, is this, is this resonating with me? And that tells me early on, you know, Hey, uh, let's, let's move forward with this. But uh, also Mike Flanagan is uh, a big fan of piano and a lot of his scores are very piano driven. Uh, he's also a great piano player as well. And, and so I think for Flanagan films, we tend to gravitate towards piano on a lot of stuff um, because I feel like it works really well with the stories he tells and, and, you know, obviously he, he enjoys it too. So you guys mentioned using live musicians. Is that something you did a lot of on the score? And did you also use virtual instruments? Yeah, we, it's, uh, we called it the, unfortunately, the COVID orchestra. We, we did all of our mock-ups, which involve sort of Taylor and I playing as much as we can and then using virtual instruments as well. And then we started layering those and swapping things out with uh, live players. It's great, actually, because, I mean, what you can do with samples nowadays, I mean, it's been almost 20 years since I've been doing this. And when I started doing this, like virtual instruments were like, I can't imagine what Bernard Herrmann would have done, like had he had the whole Spitfire library. There's a lot of just things you can do now. You know, you can play with things. You can sit at the piano and come up with your your melody with your kazoo and, you know, a great sounding grand piano on your keyboard. And then you can experiment with like, how would this sound if it was just woodwinds or just horns or all of them or, or nothing or guitar, you know, like everything. It's sort of, um, we find that you have to sort of create boundaries for yourself because otherwise you're just sort of, you know, out in space floating around. Um, I think creating like boundaries for ourselves is something we try and do all the time, just in sort of theory and we don't necessarily stick to those boundaries, but starting in sort of like a playpen of like, let's stay here and play with these toys. And then if, if we're informed that something, a toy in someone else's playpen might work, like, let's go to that playpen, you know? And it's interesting, like in this process, doing it with everyone at home too, there's good and bad, you know, it's a bummer, a huge bummer to not be in a room with musicians because there's sort of a magic that happens, which is why everyone loves live shows, because there's a magic that happens when people are, are playing together. But then there's also the, the benefit of, you know, we definitely got a true sound of sort of what we were going for. Um, so that's a positive side to all of this. Yeah, we had to we had to record each player one by one, which is, uh, you know, was a very uh, we, we had approached it with a very kind of like a technical uh, approach um, in the, in the sense of just recording goes, which was, you know, not, not normal, but with a, a great mix and a great mixer and a great team, we were really able to kind of bring it all together and glue all the pieces, all the players. So it sounded like they're playing in one room. And then of course we just put all the stuff we played on top of it and, and it came out great. I'm actually really, really happy with the way the final mixes came out on the score. So but it was definitely, you know, it's a unique time. So, you know, unique, unique recording experience. 
Yeah, and it's it, it it was especially on especially with what was happening with the pandemic. Um, our team is is crucial to this whole process. Like our music editor Snacky, he was sort of instrumental in making sure everything was sort of getting done the way it should be done, and also like giving us some good information and good feedback, like creative feedback. It's always a great sort of situation when everyone around you is sort of looking at the same goal line and uh you know music editor uh mixer brad and you know mixer jonathan wales like everybody is really on point to like help us get to where we needed to be so when writing these tracks with virtual instruments do you find that when you do the orchestration and you give the oboe player their part let's say are they like could we make this change and this change because it's actually a bit difficult to play this part on an oboe we run into that when we try to push the boundaries of what can be played or you know you're obviously if you're playing something that's more difficult of an articulation or something um that usually gets discovered like we kind of know hey, hey going into this this isn't kind of difficult to play or impossible to play, especially on something like Dr. Sleep, which is very odd and strange instrumentation. Um, something like Blind Manor, though, which is kind of based in more traditional instruments it's in, in, and also approach, it wasn't so much a thing. But we definitely run into that where they're just like, oh, man, I don't, I don't know if we can do this. And we're like, oh, yeah, no, you can do it. And so, you know, they go and they play. And uh, sometimes it, it's working, sometimes it isn't. And also there's obviously the the middle ground, which is the orchestrator, um, Mark Graham, who does a lot of our orchestration, he, he's like, this is great. You know, uh, they're going to struggle with this. They're going to struggle with that. And we're like, yeah, we know, but we got to try it. Or he'll inform us of something maybe that we didn't see. Um, but it's, it's always, it's always fun. It's always fun to push the, the boundaries and, and with the players. So I, I, I love that part. I love it when a player goes like, Oh, like, <laughs> I don't know. We're going to be able to play this. <laughs> no, you can play it. <laughs> yeah, and there, there. Sometimes, sometimes it yields happy accidents, and sometimes, sometimes we have to like do a different version in a different key. There was a film we did, Life of Crime, uh, with Jennifer Aniston, and there's a a trumpet melody that plays in a few places, and we wrote it high. We knew that it was high, uh, so we hired someone who specifically is known for playing high. Um, and he crushed it. Like it was better than it's, you know, and we had this whole discussion about why it sounded so great after he did it, which was because it's really pushing the boundaries of like the physical boundaries of what humans can do with, with instruments. And it's sort of like, you know, there's some great amplifiers that sound best when they're at the verge of breaking up. There's that thing that just happens, you know, and voices too, you know, there's, there's voices that, you know, when they're pushed, there's something that just happens with the way, you know, the vibrations work. Good vibrations, I guess. It's, it's, it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to Blind Manor, did you have any favorite themes or favorite scenes to score? Oh, man, that's tough. Uh, I feel like it changed every time we get a new episode. It'd be like, oh, this is our favorite episode. Oh, no, now this is our favorite episode. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, yeah, that, that's a tough one. Um, for me, there's a seat, there's a whole scene that where she's walking into the lake and it's very still and it's very beautiful. It's almost poetic, like what's happening. And she's not fully aware of what's occurring to her. And, um, you know, we played the music like a tragic kind of, you know, tragedy essentially, but it still was based in, in love. And that whole sequence really resonated with me. Um, and obviously there was a couple of ones in, in episode eight and nine that, that, you know, got me a little teary eyed. Um, but yeah, I'll let you, I'll let you answer that. Yeah. I mean, I think the, I think the arc really, like, as we started getting into later episodes, I think, you know, like we're sitting with the, we're sitting with the music longer, just as viewers are, as you get into the later episodes and you're learning more about the characters so your whole like being is becoming more invested in, in what's happening. So I, I think all of episodes eight and nine were just a, a joy to, I mean, it was all really, I mean, it's all such a joy to be able to work on this project. Um, 
but coming to the end of the series is always great because especially, you know, in episode nine, I don't want to give anything away, but it just, it's very fulfilling, uh, especially in nine. As we were watching down one of the final mixes of episode nine towards the end, it, it's, it really sort of resonated with me like, wow, this, you know, you get to a point where you really enjoy it. So that was my very long answer of, I think episode nine entirely was my favorite. Yeah, I think, I think too, for me, I, I, what I found was like, um, there were characters or particularly one character who's kind of slightly devious, you could say. Um, and, uh, we read the script, so I knew where this was going, but because his acting was so great and he's so charming, I was like, man, I really like this guy. Like I really feel for him. And then like, why am I feeling for him? He's, he's horrible. You know? <laughs> and I, so that was happening. I felt there were, there were sequences in the show where I was starting to, to root for things that maybe I shouldn't which I think is always a good sign because the viewer is, is torn on which, you know, what to be feeling. Yeah. Um, yeah. That complexity in the storytelling is always a good thing. It, it is. Yeah. And I, and I really, um, I love a good, you know, a good love story. And I, and I feel like you, you feel bad and you understand why people do bad things sometimes, you know, it doesn't justify them, but at least it makes you relate in your own way in your own life. And it's just, I, I felt like there was, certain characters that was very relatable to life and, and how much they will do and become, you know, maybe selfish or just, you know, thinking of only themselves for, for love or something that they least say is because of love. I don't know, for me, that really resonated in the show while we were scoring it. And there was definitely a couple scenes like the ones that, you know, I mentioned that just like, you know, uh, just kind of took my, took my breath away. So I hope, I hope viewers love those scenes as much as, much as we do. Yeah, the, the the complexity in stories is always so rewarding because, I mean, that's what we're all dealing with in life, even not in 2020, right? Like we, we, we want like, we want every day to look like, you know, an Ikea showroom of like, this is the table and this is the beautiful fruit on the table. <laughs> we, we want it to be this like perfect, like picture that, you know, that we see on you know, all over the internet now of like the perfect posts of everything, but that's just, that doesn't exist for, for anyone. The stories, you know, this season, as this season was even unfurling for us in reading the script and then seeing it come to life. I think that for anyone that like thinks about life more than just like the day to day, which I think is everyone, um, it, it resonates with everyone differently, specifically grief, like, cause everyone deals with grief, whether it, has to do with, with death or love or loss of love or, you know, and I think that that really lands um, heavy, I, I think. Yeah, this series is definitely a blend of drama and mystery and love and just a bit of horror. It's weighty subject material. Um, how do you reflect those themes and the emotional content of the story in your music without overtly leading the audience as to what they should feel or what the director wants them to feel? Um, you know, that's a really great, great question because it's really easy to, especially with drama, to get quickly into melodrama where the music is is telling you to feel overly saccharine about something or that you should feel this incredible, overly sweet love for something. So we're always very cautious with that. And I know Mike uh, is also very sensitive to leading the witness and when to do something, when not to do something. But a lot of the themes that we wrote in season one and the new themes in season two are really very rooted in in sort of this neutral ground where if you took that piece and you put it on a sad scene, it could work. And, and if you took it on a happy piece, it also could work. So it, it has this sort of ability to mold to certain scenes to be neutral in some ways. And you can amp up certain chords or certain things to kind of draw out the, the emotion that you're wanting to. So I think we, we definitely tread that water very carefully, especially in season two, because of the fact there's so much love and there's so much, you know, this, this horror show, but it's really, you know, this love story that it has these moments of these horrific things. So I think that was the key ingredient, which was being very careful in selecting it. But the actual music itself isn't these like overly happy chords, isn't this overly like saccharine kind of thing. And, and, um, and so that's, I think that really helped with the balance of that. And also too, when there was a scene that was maybe really happy and filled with this really just kind of overjoy, 
maybe that's a time to go dry. You know what I mean? Maybe that's a time not to have any music because you, you, you really want people to relate to, to their own experiences, to what they're feeling as much as relating to the characters again. And you don't want to, like I said, you don't necessarily want to have made a decision about a character early on. You want to kind of be open to the idea that this person is, isn't necessarily bad or this person is doing something out of a, of a good place that he's coming from or she's coming from. So I think that was kind of the goal. And, and, and Mike uh, really led and kind of carved that out in season one and even more so in season two. And we, of course, just kind of followed the blueprints and it worked really well. Yeah. There, there's a, there's a constant sensitivity to what's going on. And it, it's, um, it's been really great on these two seasons to, you know, the entire team from the top down and by sensitivity, I mean a sensitivity to let's, exp- let's, you know, Taylor and I will work on themes, ideas for scenes. Um, but then we're being sensitive to it in that, you know, the next day, the next week we're listening to it and going, maybe, maybe we should, maybe we should dial this down or maybe we should dial it up. And I think that it's, and it doesn't come from a place of not being confident. It actually comes from, you know, confidence in that sensitivity, which is a difficult thing to sort of find because I don't think there is an exact right answer. It's different for everyone, but it's great that everyone on this show has that a similar stance, you know, like Mike will comment on music based on how he feels about it. We might all agree that this certain sound should do a certain thing and it needs to have motion and it needs to do A, B, C, and D. We might all have a call about it and say, yep, do it. And Taylor and I will go and do it and we'll do it. And we'll think that it works and it feels good. And then as we all, you know, watch it down, or maybe even before that, we might say like, oh, you know what, that's not working for this reason. It's not hitting this. There's a sensitivity to being aware of what's sort of working and what's not working. And I think that that's what made this process so much fun is that everyone is aware of that specific sensitivity. There's like, there's like the craft of what you're doing. And then there's this like weird thing that's coming in from the other side. And if those two things can meet at a point, they become something that's not what they were by themselves, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, but, but being aware of that and looking out for that is, is hard to do. You know, it takes, it takes time. You have to have the time on the schedule. And luckily we had time on this and it takes the entire team being open to that idea. And from the top down, ev- everyone was on this and it made it a real joy. So if you're trying to not write something that's overly sweet or saccharine, is there a chord progression that you just avoid like the plague? (laughs) I mean, um, yes, (laughs) (laughs) especially, especially, you know, with piano, you gotta be really careful because it's, we've all seen those, you know, not to, not to make less of them, but like, you know, a Christmas Hallmark special or something. You know, and, and look, Hey, I like some of those and some of those are great. Yeah. Some of those are great, but they do a certain thing. They make you feel this sort of, this sort of super sweet, kind of overly happy at times. And that's great for those kind of things. And, and yeah, some of them are fantastic, but for a show that's rooted in, in sort of horror and drama, you know, you can't, you can't do, you can't do that or else you'd be shot in the head. <laughs> I mean, I, I, yeah. And I think there's ways to like, just be aware of it, right? Like if you're gonna, if you're gonna use the earth angel chord progression, you want to be aware that there's expectations. Everyone knows where the next chord's going to go and there's ways you can invert it and there's instrumentation. But I think being aware of that within a score is important because you don't want it to ever be too comfortable. And when you do, it's easier to go there if you don't keep it too sort of standard, I guess would be the word, um, for the majority of it. So, you know, it's, I don't think it's necessarily a specific chord progression, but being like aware of what you're doing. And really it all stems from, I mean, Bach was kind of pop songs, you know, it's chord progressions. It's, uh, and the melodies weave throughout them. And there's, uh, I, I think just being aware of them is, is good so that you don't, so people don't go like, dude, that's earth angel. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> we, we, yeah, there, we, we also had a lot of, uh, of the cues early on, since we're talking about, you know, chord progressions early on, a lot of the cues before we got to the later episodes, a lot of them, 
you know, maybe half of them in an episode wouldn't resolve back to the one, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't finish. So there was always this feeling of like, uh, <laughs> you know, where we, we, we want to resolve and then it wouldn't. And, you know, a lot of those specific notes came from, from Mike himself. He'd be like, Hey, let's not resolve here. Hey, let's not do this. And so we go and we would, you know, let it kind of ring out, but not, not go back. And it definitely gives a certain, you know, sensation, just like a certain chord progression that would be overly sweet or saccharine makes you feel. So we definitely, uh, we, we played with that for sure. That's awesome. And it's so great that Mike is so in tune with the music and is able to express those things to you in a musically technical way and not just in an emotional way. Like, I want to feel happy here or I want to feel blue here. I mean, Mike, Mike is a, an amazing, uh, yeah, he's an amazing musician himself. And, and he's actually also a writer, too, when he has time. I mean, he can write music, too. Uh, but he's, you know, these days he's, he's so busy. He doesn't have time to write music. Um, but, but yeah, it's great to be able to obviously, you know, um, every, every director we enjoy working with and we develop a shorthand with, and Mike is, is great. So he'll be like, yeah, you know, change this to an F minor, go here and oh, you know what, maybe we should try this, you know, this inversion. And like, it's, yeah, it's very refreshing at the same time, you know, uh, the rope is long. <laughs> so, you know, you can hang yourself super fast. Everything you do needs to have an intention and a purpose. And, and every time we do a project with Mike and Trevor, um, you know, we, we want to set the bar super high. So um, not just because Mike is so in tune with music, but also because we, you know, we want the show and everything to be as great as it can be. But uh, it's always funny because everyone's like, oh, you know, you're doing this, this show with Mike or this next thing. It's super easy. And we're like, well, yeah, no, it's easy. I mean, Mike is easy to work with, but there's a lot of effort. And I feel like we're always trying to step it up a notch from our last thing. And so, um, you know, makes it makes it more fun and a challenge. We stress ourselves out. Taylor and I are like our own therapists. We like stress ourselves out at the beginning of every project. Uh, but it's a good stress, I think. <laughs> it's an arc. It's like it's excitement, fear, you know, and the, the adrenaline. Yeah. Then, and it's like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, if you're going to train to run the Boston marathon, like it's not going to be easy. It's going to suck. Like it's going to be really hard. And then you might not even finish, but, um, you know, the point is you, 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 you know, you give it your all. That was a bad analogy, but sort of good, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Well guys, that was all of my questions. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about either as working as a musical duo or about the music on Bly Manor specifically? I will say that um, it's interesting because when you write a score, a score that is based around, um, you know, from season one to season two, there are all these horrific things that happen and all these scary things. But it's, it's always very interesting to me where the story can draw you in and, and suck you in. And, and I think that is really by design whenever Mike tells these stories. And, and I, I just think it's really, from a, just a writing standpoint, it's always an absolute blast to write on something that, for me at least, it's communicating something from a point of emotion and story and characters rather than just something scary and, and just something that is horrific. I mean, we do love those moments too. But, uh, and I think that's, you know, a great thing about The Haunting is that he's able to tell these stories and and it's super captivating. So for us, I I think that's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you guys so much for taking some time out to have this chat with me about Netflix's The Haunting of Bly Manor. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Jennifer. That's it for this episode. A big thanks to Jennifer Walden for doing the interviews and to Andy Kennedy and the Newton Brothers for being on the show. Be sure to subscribe to the Sound Effect podcast. Thanks a lot for listening and see you next time. Take care.